0: Bringing order to the intersection of public, private, and civic. This is Infrastructure Momentum Makers. Welcome to Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada. The only software solution purpose-built to securely run complex and high-value infrastructure procurement. All your infrastructure procurement processes in one place, all in order. And join me, Vratna Amin, as I speak with the movers and shakers at the intersection of the public, private, and civic sectors about the latest breakthroughs and developments in the world of infrastructure. I'm so excited to be joined by transportation consultant and New York MTA board member, Midori Valdivia, an executive leader with over 15 years of public transportation project and policy experience, Midori's consulting practice focuses on the intersection of transportation, climate, and equity. Midori is here today to discuss how organizations make changes in cities, what she learned from her high-profile transportation roles in New York, and how New York MTA is addressing the challenges it faces. Thanks so much for joining us, Midori. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is great. So Midori, can you tell me a little bit about your current role as a transportation consultant? How do you work with your clients? What do you help them with?
1: What does your day look like? Sure. So, I have my own consulting business, Midori Valdivia Consulting LLC, and we provide transportation and urban planning services for what I like to say for organizations trying to make change in cities. So, we also do project leadership services, we also do nonprofit management, but I work with city and state agencies, I work with community based organizations and advocates who are trying to avert the climate crisis, also trying to build build an abundant transportation system in the United States. And we just work to craft policies that center equity, try to uplift communities. And that's the work I do. Day to day, I am running around New York City. I love to meet folks in person. I love to just build relationships and really understand the problems that folks are struggling with when it comes to transit and transportation in New York City and beyond. What kinds of project leadership services do you provide? So, in terms of project leadership services, we really focus on when it comes to new initiatives for transit agencies or community organizations that are interested in testing something new. So, we really work in the space of I think innovation. So for example, um, partnering with companies to figure out how e-scooters can come into the city in a safe, effective, and equitable way. But we also work on an equity framework for Metrolink, the commuter railroad down in Southern California. And I was one of the main project managers for that project and ensuring that we're actually making a study and a framework that is useful, both for the agencies and also for the
0: community. Yeah, it seems like you provide really necessary services to leaders. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Midori, over the course of your career, you've focused on many different types of transportation issues. I'm going to list some of these issues you've championed, and I'd love for you to tell us about an example that sticks out in your mind with each of these issues. Let's start with improving the customer experience. Oh, wow.
1: That's a good one. I think there was a point... Back in 2017 in New York City, where I call it, I think we called it the summer of hell or the summer of track fires. There were a lot of issues. And at the time I had just been onboarded as the chief of staff of the MTA in early 2018. And I think the track fire summer happened in 2017, resulting in mass delays on any regular Tuesday morning. At the time, pre-COVID, the MTA, the New York City subway and bus system and commuter railroad served almost 6 million people a day. We're close to those numbers, we're 4 million these days. So one of the first projects I got to work on after, you know, addressing some of those operational issues that the very impressive team at the MTA did was I got to work on the remaining issues related to the countdown clocks. Countdown clocks were recently installed in the subway system. There's also bus time for the buses. And I just remember one of my first big meetings at the MTA was to bring 50 leaders across the MTA together and figure out what were the last gaps in the countdown clocks from IT, to the electrical maintenance division in New York City Transit, to uh, Andy Byford, who was the president of New York City Transit at the time, and trying to get to, it was, there were many technical issues, but at the heart of it was the customer and ensuring that, Everybody was focused on what the customer experience is like when you go down to a subway platform, and you don't know when the next train is coming, and how important that is. Interestingly, it's a rather new phenomenon. Back in 2018, um, they were being deployed, and I had a lot of fun because it was one way for me to learn how the agency functioned and all of the different silos. You know, the MTA, in New York City bus, commuter, rails, bridges, and 70,000 people strong. So to know that those 50 leaders represented thousands of people at this organization trying to get something right for customers. And at the end of the day, it was just, there's a lot going on. So I had a lot of fun with that customer service and how we translate the technical in like the IT space to what it looks like for customers on their journey. And to get to work, to get to school, all of these important trips they need to take. So the result was we were able to winnow it down to three major issues that resulted in there. There were some issues with ghost trains, like you would see on the countdown clock, like, oh, five minutes till the train and suddenly that train would disappear. And so what was happening in our data systems that um, ghost trains? So we were able to winnow it down from, I think, like 50 or 60 distinct problems to prioritize them, get them down to three problems and figure out how we were going to manage those really tough three problems left. And you did see improvements in that countdown clocks, you you saw less confusion, but also people really got used to them and the way that they work and the way they interface with folks. One thing that I wish, and I wasn't necessarily part of the MTA when this happened, but when they decided on the location of the countdown clock, the infrastructure, it was often at the ends of platforms because that's where they could get physical wiring from the power sources to the actual countdown clocks. And I wish like we had we were able to figure out a way in which we could get them more central to the platforms because we knew that's what customers wanted. But there were real, real infrastructure issues preventing that.
0: Mm, that's a great example. How about government technology deployment?
1: Oh my gosh, government technology deployment. That's a good one. Once upon a time, I oversaw the IT department for the New York City Taxi Limousine Commission. I was deputy commissioner for finance and administration from 2015 on. And it was around the time when Uber had no longer been like a pilot for New York City. It was very much a product that was proven for folks and a lot of people were taking it. And at the Taxi and Limousine Commission, one of the things that agency does is license over 175,000 drivers. And it also licenses, I think, over 200,000 businesses and 100,000 vehicles. So it's pretty like, large and it spans, you know, they were the largest for hire vehicle regulator in the United States. And overseeing IT, I think one of the things that we kept hearing from folks was from our drivers, our taxi drivers, our yellow cab drivers, the licensing process is too long. You want me to wait at a facility for eight hours because you don't have enough staffing to process new licenses. That's a whole day's worth of work. That's $200 net profit that I'm losing because I have to go to the TLC licensing center. And so, you know, I was part of a team that focused on how do we modernize our licensing processes and facilities to meet the needs of our 200,000 drivers. And maybe a taxi passenger out there on 34th and Lexington Avenue might say, how does that concern me? But the drivers were part of our ecosystem. They are amazing assets in the taxi network and the transportation system in New York City. It's a million trips a day. It used to be a million yellow taxi trips a day. And then drivers were turning to us and saying, hey, look at Uber. My friend just signed up with Uber and he did it on an app ASAP. And why can't you do that? Why can't you do something so quick? So we actually worked with the chief information technology officer at the time to figure that out, to modernize our arcane systems, to make it b- available where you can upload documents on mobile app. This is all very basic things, but you know the TLC licensing system hadn't really been modernized for decades. We were still using... A mainframe, you know, it looks green in the background. We're using a mainframe system called Tamas. So, how are we gonna, you know, move from that uh, to make sure that drivers could easily get licensed, but we're still doing background checks, making sure that everybody is safe to drive and have a good record of driving? How are we gonna get those uh, license checks done? in a way that's not burdensome. And I think at some point we had tracked, like how many days does it take a new person in New York City to become a professional driver? And it was definitely like the three-month mark. And we were trying to figure it out, how do we get it less than one month? The same with renewals and all that. So it was really two years of deep change where people were used to going to a licensing facility. I remember on a a big day for the licensing facility, the line would go around the wall in Queens. And now we were saying people didn't have to waste their time. And that meant that we also valued driver's time. And that was really important in a time when there was so much tumultuousness in the industry.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, those inner workings of how change really happened. I know it's so
1: hard, right? It's
0: really hard to make change
1: in government agencies.
0: It's a lot of human effort. Then there's managing
1: climate mitigation. That's a fascinating one because I think as much as I would like to say I've been I've been part of the work that really imagined what future, you know, climate crisis could look like and how to mitigate it long term. I felt like the mitigation I was doing and the mitigation and adaptation I was doing was literally responding to emergencies. Right I was a senior advisor at the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey at the time that hurricane sandy hit and in the northeast in the new york region in particular hurricane sandy was just a moment where a lot of people woke up to what it meant to live with the climate crisis today that's when you heard i think for one of the first times governors and other elected officials saying wow we're getting a 100 year storms every year You know, that might be our future. So during Hurricane Sandy, I was actually placed at the Office of Emergency Management um, for the Port Authority, working on the recovery of our port system. Our port system, I believe, was shut down for five or six days, which impeded the movement of freight. That's where I learned that New York City has a 20-day food supply, in terms of making it after a major storm. And I think in a way... I understand that in the transportation space, especially in the climate justice space, we really struggle with like trucks, right? These heavy duty diesel trucks, but trucks are our major lifeline to freight in the New York City region. We don't always want it to be that way, but that's kind of what it is now. And so to get products into the ports and then get them on trucks and make sure that they go to where they need to go into New York. Seeing all those pieces together and how it worked with like the Jones Act and the lifting of the Jones Act by the federal government. It was just fascinating to finally put all those pieces into place. But I think what I learned from that experience and also I, you know, I slept a few blocks from the emergency operations center for like a week or something And we would come in every morning and we would be working with FEMA, New Jersey Transit, Port Authority, all of these different agencies. And I had, you know, the lovely duty of figuring out how to get gasoline oil into the region to power our equipment so we could actually clean our airports and our ports. I think it really hit home for me how it was here today and how we have to start preparing for today. And that was you know, not that long ago, 2011, 2012. I took a lot of memories from that. One, you know, being in the foxhole with your team and sometimes you all work really well together and the emergency management teams are always amazing because they really know how to step up in that moment and streamline everything. And our agency really worked in this impressive way. But I also learned how, I think it just really dawned on me working these kind of emergencies how the climate crisis is here, it's been here, and how do we make the case to ensure that we're getting enough funding, to ensure that we're getting our elected officials, community members, stakeholders on board. And I think the environmental justice impacts of Hurricane Sandy was not lost to me, but how much of the recovery and the funding went to infrastructure, and not necessarily connecting the dots between infrastructure and community. I think the New York public housing space and how many houses were rebuilt and many affordable housing units were rebuilt attempted to get at that. But in the transportation space, there was a sense of disconnect. And you couldn't, I didn't understand how we could move to recover the port system without having real honest discussions about what was happening around port communities. It felt like, oh, well, that's someone else's problem. But as a steward, the Port Authority is a steward of incredible assets. If you don't know, it runs the five airports in New York, including JFK and LaGuardia. It runs the number three major port system in the United States. It also runs major bridges that connect New Jersey from New York. It runs the Port Authority bus terminal. It it rebuilt the World Trade Center after um, September 11th. So they do so much. And so there's a responsibility as a steward. And it was not necessarily just on the Port Authority, right? How does the federal government funding? How do elected officials that often do interactions around funding and how do community-based organizations, how are we all involved in ensuring that we're building a future that makes sense? And nothing like an emergency to make you wake up and say, okay, well, what are we going to do? And so that was an infrastructure weather emergency and, you know, going through the COVID pandemic, a, a major health emergency, it was really, really eye-opening for me, but it also affirmed, um the things i knew given my lived experience as a rider of transportation but also as a person that's been impacted by the built environment and urban planning
0: i think it's really powerful Midori, how you as one person are synthesizing and integrating all these different massive domains and agencies and community with infrastructure and we need more leaders who can do that
1: yeah we also need additional funding right like what does that capacity building look like within agencies
0: yeah. So the final area I'd love to
1: ask you about is challenges confronting public sector workers. It's personal to me because my family has been in the public sector for so long, but also when we think about the national health crisis that we, the global health crisis um, that uh, we had to confront in March of 2020, and for many in December, January of 2020, the COVID 19 pandemic, the it it, hit, it really hit home. My family, they were essential workers, not only here, but in Peru. And I saw how essential workers were treated during the pandemic. This notion of, well, you're going to show up anyway, while a good amount of white collar folks had the ability to work from home. And it, one, it made it so clear that transit at the end of the day is a lifeline for those who cannot choose right because uh, the united states has made transit this kind of second tier mass transit a kind of second tier transportation system a second tier mobility and and that is often why things there's just such disinvestment when you look at the majority of riders who take transit it's women it's people of color it's low income folks and then when you overlay essential workers i think something like 55% of frontline New Yorkers, essentially they use transit during the COVID pandemic, that they didn't have the luxury of taking Uber or Lyft, or maybe they rationed that depending on the cost. So I think what we all learned in the COVID pandemic, if we were not, you know, close with essential workers or essential workers are not part of our day-to-day social fabric of our lives, even though they are, right? Every time we get a delivery. Every time we take a train or a bus, essential workers run the city and they make that happen. I think my work in consulting related to public sector workers and essential workers is really about centering their dignity, knowing that. So twofold. One is that essential workers deserve not only livable wages, but they deserve hazard pay. They deserve bonuses as need be. We need to make these professions sought after profession, especially with generational differences today. It's very difficult to say, hi, welcome to essential transportation work. You're going to work from 10 p.m. to 7 a.m. every day. And we've made it impossible for you to really take public transit to our system. So you're going to have to drive and pay for parking if we don't have parking. And welcome. We will pay you, you know, $30 an hour. And $30 an hour is, is considered like respectable in, in the transportation profession if you're out there in an operator in the field. And I think that's why unions are so important because they're on the front lines of these wage discussions. My work focuses on dignity, livable wages for workers and what that looks like. And then on the second front, public sector workers, even those that work at desks, work at computers, they are the talent that will build our new infrastructure future. And so we need to make sure we're supporting them. And I speak personally as a 15-year public servant. Uh, I've worked in multiple city agencies, state agencies, I've worked in three or four agencies, and the culture is difficult. There's a lot of intergenerational tension that is not being addressed and not being welcomed into conversation there's a lot of issues related to inclusion and belonging, especially for an urban planning sector that is majority white. I think um, white people are actually overrepresented in the urban planning sector when compared to, you know, just the population amongst in the United States. And I think that's based on something Tamika Butler told me once, who's a national expert on equity issues and transportation equity in particular. So setting all that in, It's actually very difficult to thrive in a public sector agency these days. There's not a lot of money. There's, you know, there might be a hiring freeze here or there. Promotional opportunities are opaque, difficult to understand the career ladders. So in my time at the Taxing Limousine Commission, I got to work, um, I got to oversee human resources. And I love that work. But the city agency human resources function is very transactional often because they don't really have the resources to be anything else but transactional, but really thinking about strategic people issues. So it's really twofold. One is from like a dignity. What are the basic needs that we need to make sure transportation workers have to ensure that, one, this profession is attractive? Because if one day there, there was and is a continuing bus operator shortage across the United States, And that does not surprise me. Bus operators have some of the toughest jobs. I mean, you know, I'd love to hear feedback on this, but I actually think bus operator job is harder than a subway operator job because the subway operator is doing the the maneuvering and they're definitely inspecting the vehicle. But there's also a conductor that manages the customer service interaction and The conductor has more exposure to the public elements than maybe the operator. A bus operator is not only doing both, but they're navigating traffic streets, right? In a subway operator world, at least in New York City transit system, you have a system where, you know, dispatchers will tell you, okay, you can go now. We did the switch. You can go, you know, you're not going to crash into someone, right? So I think the bus operator job is one of the hardest out there. High levels of stress. You're sitting all day, and yet you're maneuvering this huge vehicle. Like kudos to them. I'm always impressed by our transit workers, but bus operators. And you know, I think you'll hear a lot of unions complaining about pay, and a lot of agencies trying to figure out how to retain bus operators, how to how to onboard them. There's also a school bus operator shortage. Why not give? these professional drivers. I think that's something also that we really need to understand that driving is a profession. Operations is a profession. Uh, You have, you know, pizza delivery drivers doing gig work or employed by companies. And that's their profession. I always think of taxi drivers. That's a profession. People are doing it 12 to 14 hours a day i hope not more than 12 hours a day actually because you have a driver safety issue it's a time crunch it's a how to figure out how to maneuver new york city so so i'm really interested in all those kind of issues and have been more focused on what does it mean to be a gig driver you know a uber driver a lyft driver a pizza delivery driver a car parts driver are you getting re insuring a society insuring that you are being treated like a professional driver and that you are compensated as such and that often these gig drivers take out huge loans to buy these vehicles and they have to get commercial driver's license, they have to get insurance requirements that are higher. It's a profession that you're investing personally to become a part of the industry. Of course. And I think we need to ensure, or or I would love to find a way to uplift the work because more and more our society is relying on it. Every time we use Seamless, Grubhub, DoorDash, I never thought I would be in the food profession, but how does the food get there? Mobility really matters. Thank you for laying out all those
0: aspects of public sector work, Midori, and, and thinking across um, what have traditionally been divided classes and classifications. So in your career, you've been involved with the New York MTA, Metropolitan Transportation Authority, in a few different ways. At one point, you were chief of staff to the chair and CEO. What did
1: you learn in that role? Professionally, it wasn't necessarily I learned it, but it's a lesson I really, really take with me is communication of intent and then communication of impact. I know that sounds really vague, but as a chief of staff, and, you know, there are many different ways to be a chief of staff. One role people have said is it's a trusted advisor. It's a gatekeeper. It's a facilitator of decisions that have real impact on the agency and who the agency serves. And I think internally, when you have transit agencies that have been through many leadership changes, and I was just yet another leader as part of a new leadership wave change, understanding that change fatigue is real and it's a much more internal facing answer, but communication of intent, what you're intending to do, and then recognizing the impact and then also verbally and transparently highlighting it for staff and folks and my team members. You can't get anything done without trust, which again I think we know and we hear. You know when we learn about careers or what what we can do, we say, oh, we can trust. You know you have to build trust. Oh, Well, what does that mean? You know I think a lot of folks in like the urban planning profession, they're touted for and and praised for their technical skill sets. But at the end of the day, we do our work with people, not through people. And so trust is so immense. And I saw that institutionally as the MTA was looking for capital funding for its next capital plan, which is how congestion pricing legislation came along and congestion pricing policy will be something that will be instituted for New York City In 2024, there are ways that the MTA board, MTA staff, New York City DOT, Department of Transportation are all involved. But if you're going around as a big agency saying, please, the majority of our assets, our trillion dollar asset portfolio is in need of of repair and is not in a state of good repair. Please give us more money to fix it. Why would any state legislature give any public authority who's come under a good amount of criticism around transparency, accountability, its ability to execute on capital projects, bricks and mortar projects, why would they give the MTA money? Who can speak for the MTA? Who can demonstrate trust to the stakeholders, not just elected officials, but a coalition of we had a fix our transit coalition related to congestion pricing. but. Those folks also needed to hear that we were going to do things differently this time. It wasn't going to be a black hole of investment because just the nature of the disinvestment cycles built an MTA that was struggling back in 2016, 2017. So I think it just really hit home. Trust is always important, but also how do you work to build trust as an institution in a time when American society, there's all of these surveys to show American society is distrustful of institutions.
0: Yeah, just a side note on that, Midori. I've thought about there's a lot of study of the public's attitude towards institutions and trusting them, but we actually haven't studied what creates trust, which is what you're getting at. We don't really actually share the best practices for how a governing body, a governing board executive teams build trust with the public, you know, kind of reverse engineering. And what are those decision-making processes that actually we need to
1: institute in more places? Yeah. I would love us to work on that together, Rana. That'd be cool because that's what, that's what agencies need to do. Speaking from your current
0: role on the board of the MTA, what are the biggest challenges the organization is facing
1: and how are you seeking to address them? It's something I think about every time I'm in the MTA boardroom. Not like, what are the challenges? I think all board members know what the challenges are. It's about, okay, how are we going to fix it? How are we going to address it? I think the first major hurdle that we have overcome, and I want to applaud our chair and CEO, Jano Lieber for leading the fight on this is to avert the fiscal cliff. There is a transit fiscal cliff, multi-billion dollar deficits. We're able to avert it with the leadership of Governor Hochul, a plethora of elected officials and stakeholders who really worked side by side with the MTA to do that. So that was a challenge that, that thankfully we were able to address for now. First time ever, no deficits through I think 2025, 2026, which is like fairly impressive, knock on wood. I think the second challenge we have is something that COVID-19 affirmed for those who are working in the mobility, justice, and equity space, which is how does this large mass transit system who, you know, the management notes that 95% of New Yorkers have access to transit in New York City, that and they have a very technical definition around that. How do we ensure and rectify the disconnects and the inequities of our system? And I think that is something that often transit agencies think about it from a geographic equity standpoint, but there are many ways that equity can be operationalized. So my interest is actually working and learning more about, one, what the MTA's definition of equity is. And I've asked that in our board meetings and pushing for us to really adopt an equity framework that is beyond, oh, this is equitable because I think at some point I talked with a leader from a different unnamed Northeast state that said buses are inherently equitable because the medium income for bus passengers are X. I was like, well, actually, we're not digging into where buses go, where buses don't, but also what is that bus experience like for folks? So I think that's a huge one. I think a second one continues to be, how does MTA modernize? I think we have great leadership in place with our construction development team to think about how we make capital projects move faster because then that means people get, for less money, better transit. And how do we make that happen? And then- kind of I for me it's really back to this equity question of when we're talking about service improvements or what they call service guideline adjustments when we're talking about things that don't necessarily trigger a title 6 review but we are being very vocal about where our values lie that's where I'm going to question and that's where I'm going to make sure that riders are getting what they deserve for their
0: $2.90. Speaking of money and fares, in August of 2023, the MTA instituted a fare increase, and you were part of that process. Given that these types of events impact so many people and there's going to always be a lot of discourse about
1: it, what were the factors that went into making this decision? That is something that the board definitely struggle with, and we vote on fare increases and fare freezes. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the fares were frozen. And at some point, the buses actually were free. And that was an interesting experiment in which I really want to know the data uh, from kind of ridership and all of that ridership did increase when fares went free. I think it was part of a big package of how do we look to fund transit? And Personally, for me, I can't really speak to other board members, but personally for me, I wanted to understand that there would be service improvements associated with fare increases because fare increases without service improvements, kind of from a product perspective, what are you getting? And so that really mattered to me. In addition to the contemplation around fair increases. This happened during the state budget process. And that's where we averted the, tr- the fiscal cliff. The state government provided funds, the city government provided funds. And there was a sense that in addition to that, to close the deficit gap, we also needed the, I believe it was a 4.5% fair increase. It was originally, I believe a 5.5% and we were able to negotiate that down. As part of that package, this notion of like, okay, we're going to have fair increases as part of closing the deficit gap. There was also a real push by the advocates and I really want to applaud them here, the Riders Alliance and Betsy Plum, who who is executive director of the Riders Alliance. They had a hashtag six minute service. You know, they were saying all subways should have headways of six minutes and a very ambitious goal, but they put a price tag on that. And they said, We deserve service improvements, not necessarily tied to fare increases, but because of the COVID-19 pandemic, because we're trying to increase ridership, we deserve service improvements. And for me as a board member, those two things were tied together, that how can I say, hey, you all need to pay and not bring service to the forefront? One thing, though, I do think benefited us really well, and this kind of gets into like governance and process, is that the MTA management understood, I think, that the board was very interested in kind of getting more into the weeds on how we were going to design fare increases, what that would look like. There could have been a potential for a $3 fare on the table. I think some of us were very passionate that we were not ready for a a fare that went to $3. And I can say I was passionate about that. But there are operating constraints related to taking more change versus dollar. You know, there's all sorts of those kind of things. But I really appreciated the fact that we had a board working group that focused, I think we had five or six meetings deliberative. It was a small group of us that focused on what does the fare impact look like? What is its impact on equity? You know, from that process, I learned that the seven-day fare package to weekly Is what most families making under sixty thousand dollars used that they weren't using the paper ride that it was so weekly. So super fascinating to get the data, and a lot of things went into me like understanding demographic information and all that as well in terms of the impacts of who this who this would hurt and who bears the burden.
0: That story really highlights the importance of deliberation and having time to deliberate these difficult intersectional issues. Another role you formerly held was deputy commissioner for finance and administration at the New York City Taxi and Limousine Commission. Taxis are an iconic part of New York City's image and also critical to how the city functions. In recent years, we've seen the rise of ride sharing, giving taxis competition they hadn't really had before. How would you describe the current status
1: of taxis in New York? I think taxis are this iconic element like you mentioned, Ratna, and you still see yellow taxis every day in New York City. It is true that their trip volume is down in terms of market share, but I think they'll never go away. I think there will always be a business case for yellow taxis to be able to hail which is what we call the street hail, to be able to put your arm up and get a taxi cab. I think another aspect of it is taxis are actually a lot more wheelchair accessible and accessible to those who are struggling with like hearing and vision, maybe low vision. They're actually a lot more accessible in that because they are seen as a public asset of sorts and they have regulatory structures around that, much more so than the four hire vehicles, so Uber and Lyft. So I think that gives them a competitive advantage as as our city, Grows older as there are more children, young children. Yeah, I think they're going to be around for a long time.
0: And I understand that you led the development of the largest wheelchair accessible
1: taxi fleet at the time. I hope another city has beat us by now, but at the time, we put twenty five hundred wheelchair accessible taxis on the fleet. Look, I don't want to give. I mean, kudos to the Taxi Limousine Commission for censoring that, but that did come out of a federal settlement related to an accessibility lawsuit and. In the disability justice space, that's where a lot of the wins have been through litigation. So it's been really fascinating to be a part of the process where I come in after a settlement is done. And then we say, okay, how are we going to make this happen? And how are we going to think about it positively that this is something that the public deserves? So it was a super fun project. I got to build a program office from scratch at a regulatory agency. Like regulatory agencies don't do programs, you know, so it was super fun. Wow, how
0: innovative. Midori, you have such a rich set of experiences and perspectives for somebody who's from the urban planning sector. How can we all contribute to the increased representation of women and people of color in the urban planning sector? That is a
1: question I ask myself all the time. And And kind of a question for me, like, am I doing enough? Am I making sure that early career folks are getting the access they need? Because I didn't have that access, right? I think in terms of emerging leaders or what I call like early career folks, I think really ensuring that they get more visibility, right? Thinking of people of color who, one, it's very difficult to understand that there's something called the urban planning sector anyway. A lot of my... Close colleagues and friends who I think are leaders in the space kind of fell into it similarly to me, you know. So I think one, looking at early career teammates and colleagues and get them on some panels, get them to that conference and get them to really start touching folks in terms of connecting shared interests. I think two, hire differently. I think what I, I struggle a little bit as a champion of women of color in our space, so many people come to me and are like, okay, do you know an ED for this job? Do you know a, a person for this job? Uh, you know, and and they, want, they are interested in diversifying their pool and they may want a person of color. And they're like, oh, but they're not in the pipeline. And it's like, no, it's because you don't choose us. The famous pipeline. Right, like you don't choose us. Let's be real about that, you know? And I will say like most of my career transitions have happened and promotions have happened because of close relationships with my supervisors who believed in me, who championed me. But championing someone, for some may feel like it's a risk but it's not, it's not a risk. If you think they're great, shout it through the rooftops. And if you see, you know, a black woman at the table, a Latina woman at the table, South Asian woman at the table, like invite them, welcome them to the table. You know, in, in agencies, there's a lot of like first table and then like an audience uh, row. And I remember when I first became special assistant to the executive director of the Port Authority, and there was a a wonderful name, a man. His name was Ernesto Butcher. He was chief operating officer of the Port Authority of New York, New Jersey. Panamanian descent, black Panamanian man. And it was the first time I think like a a woman of color had been like a special assistant to, I'm not really sure of like the history, but Ernesto saw me, he barely knew me, but he knew I was new to the office and we were doing a big business planning meeting where the aviation department was going to showcase their business plan. And I was a representative from the head office. And I sat, you know, in my suit, but second row, I must've been in my early twenties. And Ernesto was like, no, 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 no. You sit here next to me. And I wish I had been stronger to say, oh, I belong at the table. At the time, someone had to invite me to the table to be at the table. And then I learned, oh, no one needs to invite me to the table. And now, Ratna, I'm at the place where we build our own tables. So that's where I am now. (laughs)
0: Yes, the table is real. It's not just a metaphor. Okay, we're going to go to the rapid fire round now. Okay, okay. As a New Yorker and a public transportation enthusiast, I have some rapid fire questions for you about your favorite New York City modes of
1: transport. What is your favorite bus? B41, Flatbush Avenue, cuts right across it. One day, maybe it could be a bus rapid transit route. I don't know. Favorite subway line? Uh, The Q or the B. I'm going to go Q. What about your favorite subway station? Mm, It's a closed one. It's the City Hall station that's underneath City Hall that has been closed for some time. Mm. Favorite bridge? Uh, Brooklyn Bridge because Emily Roebling finished it, the wife of the person who designed and built the bridge.
0: Favorite ferry? The ferry to the Rockaways. What about your favorite mode of transportation in the city beyond the categories I just mentioned?
1: Walking. You know, I have the privilege of being able to walk around the city and with my stroller and my girl. And we like to hang out with birds and squirrels. And people think New York City doesn't have animals. We have more than rats. There are more animals out there. It's wild. Yes.
0: (laughs) Okay. Managing major infrastructure projects can be a stressful ordeal. Where do you find order in the chaos? Hmm.
1: Where do I find order is building alignment. I don't try to solve fourth or fifth order issues because it usually means there's not alignment somewhere down the chain. So you're wasting your time if you're not building alignment. And one last question before I let you go. Is there any
0: major infrastructure project anywhere in the world that is on your bucket list to go and see one
1: day? Oh my God, yes. Thank you. Such a good question. Such a nerdy question. I love it. Uh, I don't know what it's called, but it's the caverns underneath Tokyo to support like flood mitigation and to take in water. And it was a humongous project and I would love to tour I guess it's underneath the subways too, but I would love to tour what that infrastructure is and if we need something like that here. Ooh, that's a good one. Midori, thank you so
0: much for sharing your time and your experiences with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Our guest today once again was transportation consultant and New York MTA board member, Midori Valdivia. Thanks so much for joining us, Midori, and telling us about your work in the transportation consulting world. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you all once again for listening to our show. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find us. Until next time, I'm Ratna Amin, and this has been Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada.